0: Good morning. Good morning to be here with you this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 13. I'm just going to test my my slides out so it won't be a distraction later if there's a problem. Turn it on. All right, there it is. It's working. Um, Acts chapter 13. We're going to actually kind of... Spend some time this morning in thir- chapter 13 and 14, all the way through those chapters. We won't read all of it, but we're going to spend some time taking a look at that. Um, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me and you can kind of follow along as I, as I work through chapter 13 and then into chapter 14 as well. Before we get started, let us pray. Draw us close, Holy Spirit, as the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed. Let the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts, and let other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace. Amen. There is a significant pivot in the book of Acts when we get to chapter 13. We've been um, working our way through the book of Acts and, and, and spending some time on, on the, the birth of the early church the, as the church comes into the world as, after Christ has departed and sent the Holy Spirit to empower the disciples to be the body of Christ in the world, to be the continuing work of Christ in the world. And there's a significant switch or pivot in, the book, in chapter 13. At, up to this point, Jerusalem really has been the center. Of the work of the church. So Jerusalem is where the Spirit is poured out. It's where Jesus ends up at the end of the book of, book of Luke, and he's killed there in Jerusalem. He's buried there in Jerusalem. His resurrection takes place in Jerusalem. And then after he ascends nearby, the disciples spend time in Jerusalem waiting for the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out onto them in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem becomes sort of the center of, of the, the, the church. It's the headquarters of the church, um, and it's where, where God first begins to lay the work of the church in the world. The, the early church begins there in the book of, book of Acts. Jesus um, makes his way to Jerusalem in the book of Acts, and that's where it culminates. And then after he departs, the church makes their way out of Jerusalem. So it's into Jerusalem for Jesus and then out of Jerusalem for the apostles and the disciples. And so Jerusalem, again, it's where Jesus does his final work. And then it's where the disciples begin their work as his followers. And we see this in this image. I think it's helpful to picture it this way. Jesus tells his disciples, go back to Jerusalem, wait. The Spirit will be poured out to you, and then you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem and Judea, Judea is where Jerusalem is located, then in Samaria, which is just outside of Judea, it's that place where all of the religious heretics of the day lived in Samaria, and that's where the gospel will go as well, and then the gospel will go out from there to the ends of the earth. We hear of it going into Galilee, where Jesus began. And we hear it going into um, Assyria, which is above Judea and above Galilee. The gospel is spreading out into all the world. And so the first few chapters, first chapters one through seven, we hear of all of these stories in Jerusalem with the church. And, and by the end of those stories, the church is being persecuted in Jerusalem. And, and God uses this terrible thing of persecution to, For the good of spreading the church out and so it spreads out into Judea um, and then into Samaria as the people make their way um, as the disciples make their way out of Jerusalem they make their way into this area and then by chapter the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13 we finally hear that last part of what Jesus says first Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria then to the ends of the earth and so by the time we get to chapter 12 and 13 that's where we're at It's to the ends of the earth. They have made it to the ends of the earth as the gospel is being spread out into specifically the Roman world at this point in time. And so even as the church is spreading out from Jerusalem... Despite that, up to this point, Jerusalem remains the headquarters. Despite the fact that it's being resisted there, people are being persecuted and even killed in Jerusalem, Jerusalem remains the headquarters, the, the main the main point of the church, where the church goes out from. The apostles remain there even in the midst of persecution. And whenever they hear about the gospel spreading in Samaria, it's Peter and John, they're sent Right by the church out of Jerusalem to go and see that. And then again, Peter is sent out into um, uh, up above uh, above in in um, the different places. And so it, it still serves as the center of the church. But that begins to change in chapter 13. Jerusalem is the launching pad until chapter 13. Some new things begin to happen. Another headquarters for the church begins there. In chapter 13, we have a new beginning, another headquarters. And it's nowhere in the, the, the promised people of God, that, that, that promised land area. It's no longer in Israel. It's no longer in Judea or Samaria or, or um, in, in Galilee. It is now beyond those realms. It's in Syria. Syria, a, a country that's been an enemy of the people of God for a long time, specifically being controlled now by the Roman Empire and the Greeks, people who have been enemies of the people of God for some time. We, we arrive there in Syria in Antioch. And that's where chapter 13 begins. We see in chapter 13, there's a new headquarters, a new launching pad for the church begins there outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea and outside of Israel's land. Luke's narrative narrative is going to shift now in chapter 13 from Jerusalem as the center to a different place, different points in the world being the center of the church. There are three missionary journeys of Paul, and this is where they start. Three missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts. And this is where the first one happens through chapter 13 through 28. We'll see those. And that's what we'll be spending the rest of the time in the book of Acts looking at. Now we're going to look at the first missionary journey. It takes place in chapter 13 and 14. And so we go back to that first journey and then we'll we'll take a look at a specific part of it. But I want us to spend some time taking a look at that journey. Again, we begin in, in chapter 13 in Antioch of Syria, some 300 miles north of Jerusalem. This is where we find Saul, also called Paul. Saul begins to be called Paul here in chapter 13 because his official ministry to the Gentiles is going to begin. And and Paul sort of serves as more of a Greek version of the name Saul. Saul is very much a Hebrew name. We think of King Saul in the Old Testament. That's where that name comes from. But Paul is more of a Greek name. It, it, It lines up more with his mission to the Gentiles. And so he begins to be called by Paul at this point. So we hear Paul and Barnabas being chosen by the Spirit in the beginning of chapter 13 to go on a missionary journey. Incredible things are reported there. The, the gospel spreads. People are healed. Um, the, the people begin to, to have an understanding of who Christ is in different parts of where Paul and Barnabas are sent. Here's a map of that journey. You can see it comes out of Antioch um, and he goes over to this island and he makes his way across the island. That's where they begin. Paul and Barnabas, along with John, Mark, they make their way across to the island of Paphos. The name of this island is Paphos. It's a Roman province. Again, just like everywhere else that we hear about in the New Testament, the Roman Empire is, um, is in charge of this island called Paphos. And, and so they go to this island. They get off. I'm sorry. I said the island Paphos. The name of the town is Ap- Paphos. The name of the island is Cyprus. So they begin to proclaim the gospel there. As soon as they get off the boat, they make their way. You can see they make their way across the island to Paphos at the end there of Cyprus. And it's Paphos where the the governor of the island lives. And he hears about Paul and Barnabas spreading the gospel. And he wants to hear about it. And So he he summons Paul and Barnabas to him in order to hear from it. But while they're there in the court of of this governor, there's some um, resistance to the gospel. A man, uh, a, a magician. Paul seems to see the heart of this man. He can look into the intentions of this man. He doesn't, he's resistant to the gospel, and it's out of negative intentions that he's resistant to the gospel. He sees the heart of this man. He perceives that his intentions are evil, and at the words of Paul, a sort of reverse healing takes place. It's the exact thing that happens to Paul. Paul goes blind when he first encounters Christ on the road to Damascus, and that's what happens to this magician. His blindness his blindness his, that is more, um, less physical and more a reality of a spiritual becomes a physical reality for him, just as it did for, for Paul. And so a reverse healing sort of happens for this magician. He goes blind in this moment as he's resisting Paul and as Paul sees through his, his intentions and sees that they're evil. And so this miraculous unhealing is done in, in the presence of the Roman governor over there in that province of Cyprus. And it results in this governor believing. It, it, it helped the, the church. Again, this reverse healing of this man who had evil intentions results in the church being, being able to spread in Cyprus and the church being planted in Cyprus. The Roman governor there believing himself in the gospel now. And so in this city, there, um, there's some resistance, but it results in the church being birthed. Then the missionaries depart Cyprus, and they go to another Antioch, not the same Antioch up there in, in this area up at the, at the top of the slide there, and, and so they 're there in that area in that Antioch in Pisidia, the, the, the province of Pisidia. They begin to proclaim the gospel there in Antioch and they, um, in, this, in this area the, the Jew and Gentile worshippers who they begin to demonstrate an interest in the gospel. And so they they come to Paul and Barnabas and they want to hear more. But then some of them, some of the Jewish believers, the the Jewish uh, people that live there begin to resist the gospel. They they don't like what Paul and Barnabas is saying. And so the missionaries draw a crowd, almost the whole city, Luke tells us. And the Jews who reject their message of Jesus become jealous. We hear this. Speaking courageously, Paul and Barnabas said... We had to speak God's word to you first, to the Jews in the area first. Since you reject it, we will turn to the Gentiles. This is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles so that you could bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the Lord's word. This is incredible. Paul begins to speak to the Jewish people who are the ones who are given the task in the Old Testament to be the light to the nation. He's quoting Isaiah there. Uh, the, where the, the Isaiah is saying that the people of God, Israel, are called to be a light to the nations. And so here's Paul and Barnabas representing the church trying to be a light to these nations, a, a, a light to these Jews that have been spread out beyond the, the, their homeland, and, and he, they're rejected for it. And so Paul now says, well, since you refuse to be the light to the nations, we as the church have become the light to the nations, and now the Gentiles are hearing God's na- God call their name. This incredible event, Paul begins, Paul and the the church are now who Isaiah is talking about. No longer Israel who have rejected that role and failed at that role, but now the church is called into that role to be the light to the nations. So now Paul and and Barnabas, representing the church, are here to accomplish the mission of God, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When Paul and Barnabas proclaim the gospel, the Gentiles hear their name spoken by God. They are told by the gospel that God desires them. A way has been made. No longer will they be a second thought, an afterthought. God values them equally with the Jews. This gospel message is that God desires them. And it's spoken through the people, through the missionaries, through the church. And so a new church is planted, but opposition continues. And Paul and Barnabas must move on. And their journey continues. And they move further over to the to the west, to the east rather. And they share the gospel there in the province of Galatia in several cities uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. There's similar events that happen there. They get resistance from some, and to cut through this resistance, there's miraculous events that happen, and the gospel spreads more. The gospel then continues to tell the outsider that God desires them. It, continu- it continues to convince those outsiders that this is something worth listening to the gospel. Paul will later write to these church in the book of Galatians. You might know that book. These are the people that he's writing to, the people that he's ministering here in the in the providence of Galatia. He will say to them in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized, as many of you that were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Central to the gospel message is that God desires all. God desires everyone. And as we preached several weeks ago, there's no boundary high enough that God cannot overcome to bring people into his people. Central to that gospel message is that God desires all people to be his people. And so in Lystra, Paul repeats the miracles of Jesus and Peter. He commands a crippled man to stand and the man is healed. And he goes on to to worship God. But then some disaster happens and that the people there interpret this miracle as Paul and Barnabas being the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they want to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. This is the exact opposite of what they want. They want the miracles to point to Christ and, and it's kind of caused the people to get confused. And so Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes. They do everything they can to deter these people from seeing them as gods. They are not gods. There is one God and he's desiring you to live and worship him. But the Greeks don't like that Paul and Barnabas refuse these titles and refuse their narratives of who they are. And so they decide to reject them. Paul is actually um, stoned in this event. Miraculously, Paul comes out of this stoning almost as if it didn't happen. He comes up. They think he's dead, but he comes up. He doesn't even seem to be injured. And so Paul and Barnabas, then they return after all of these events over years and years of this ministry. They return back to all of these cities on their way back home to Antioch to, to strengthen these churches where they had been persecuted, where they had been attempted to be killed, where they had been rejected, they return to these cities where they have been rejected in order to strengthen the church and they make their way all the way back to Antioch. So we're told at the end of chapter 14 that Paul and Barnabas, they return to the church that sent them. They don't go to Jerusalem, they return to the church that sent them, their headquarters in Antioch of Syria. The place that they had been entrusted by God's grace to complete the work. Now, what was it about the Antioch church that allowed it to serve as this new headquarters, this launching pad for such an incredible missionary event? How? What? What was it that that this Antioch church was doing that allowed it to be this place where God was launching the mission into the world? Let's take a look at the beginning of it. And we'll hear all about that Paul, all that Paul and Barnabas had done. And so we return to the beginning of where we were in Acts chapter 13. Just a couple verses. You know, we've heard the story now, what Paul and Barnabas did. Let us read this text together. And I'm going to invite you. I know it's going to throw you off, but I'm going to invite you to stand now in the middle of the sermon for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called the Black, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to for us. this is the written word of God for the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Did you catch it? Just in those few verses, did you catch it? We asked that question before reading, how did the amazing events of Paul's missionary journey, first missionary journey happen? How did they happen? The answer to that question is found in these first four verses that we've just read. We see in these verses that the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to the Antioch church. He speaks unambiguously to the church in Antioch. Verse 2, while they were the church in Antioch, while they, the church in Antioch, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit spoke clearly, unambiguously, set apart for me these two, Barnabas and Saul, by name, for the work for which I have called them. How did the amazing events of Paul's first missionary journey happen? They happened because of the clear voice of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a church, a church that was praying. So what is God doing in this text? We should ask any time we read scripture, we should ask that question. What is God doing in this scripture here? God is speaking clearly and plainly to the church, this church that ends up serving as a headquarters, a launching pad for the gospel to spread. What is God doing in this text? God is speaking clearly to God's people. But how? Why? I feel like I'm learning from my kids who have a how and why question for every single thing that we talk about, right? How and why does God speak to this church so clearly, this community of faith so clearly? Another question we need to ask when we read scripture, not only what is God doing in this text, but what are people doing in this text? What are people doing in this text? God speaks clearly to this community of faith. So what are they doing? Is the incredible work of Paul simply God controlling human beings as if they're puppets? I don't think so. Because I don't think that's what the text tells us. The story tells us that God is not the only one active. God is not the only one active in this story. God speaks clearly to a community of disciples. Yes, but not just because and not just without human action, not without human participation. So finally, I ask again, what are humans doing in, verse, in these four verses that I've just read? While the church was worshiping and fasting and praying and fasting. The church was active before Paul and Barnabas became active themselves and going on this missionary journey. The church that God spoke so clearly to was participating in the dis- disciplines of prayer and worship. The disciplines of prayer and worship. We should be looking to these churches, these church communities in the book of Acts to understand what is the purpose of the church? What does the church do? How does the church actively participate in God's mission? They were immersed in the disciplines of the church. They were immersed in the disciplines of faith. They were worshiping and praying and fasting. Before the Spirit spoke to them, we don't know how long, Luke doesn't tell us how long this prayer and fasting was going on. But before the Spirit speaks to them, the church is praying, fasting, worshiping. Before they hear the guidance of the Spirit, they are praying, worshiping, and fasting. Do we think that that is unrelated and unconnected to them hearing the voice of the the Holy Spirit so unambiguously? That is the first and foremost role of human beings in in the, the Acts church. In order for the church to hear the clear and unambiguous voice of the Spirit... must be guided, must be participating in the disciplines of worship and prayer, the disciplines of the church. That's our job. The work of the church is to be both active love, what Paul and Barnabas do as they go out into the world, but there's also this contemplative, thoughtful, prayerful, worshipful community that that action comes out of. That's our job. The work of the church is both active love and contemplation, prayer, worship. As Christians, we are called to walk with Christ. Yes, carrying our cross as we go into the world, actively loving others, our neighbors. But we are also called to sit at the feet of Jesus. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. It's a text that I read recently and it's been on my mind. Jesus visits Mary and Martha. It's Martha's home, and Martha's a faithful and diligent host. She gets upset when her sister Mary sits at the feet of Jesus in order to listen to what Jesus has to say to his teaching. She wants Jesus, the teacher, the man, the one in power in this point, to put Mary, the woman, in her place. To tell her, you don't belong here at the feet where the men are. You belong serving and and providing for us. That's what Martha wants Jesus to do. And so... But but Jesus responds, he refuses to abide by those cultural gender norms. And he defends Mary, saying that Martha has busied herself with things that really don't matter all that much. But Mary has chosen the better. Mary has chosen the better place in the home right now. At the feet of Jesus, listening, praying with Jesus. And so before we can walk with Jesus, we must sit at Jesus' feet. And that might sometimes feel like doing nothing compared to actively loving like the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. But that's what makes the first verses of Acts so important. Before Paul and Barnabas are out in the world actively loving, walking with Jesus, bearing their cross with Jesus, being stoned and persecuted with Jesus, they are a part of a community that is praying, that is immersed in the disciplines of the church of prayer and worship, waiting and listening at the feet of Jesus. So what must we do? To hear the Holy Spirit speak to us so clearly like that church in Acts. We must sit at the feet of Jesus. What must we do to know how to love our neighbor as ourselves? We must sit at the feet of Jesus. We must faithfully practice the disciplines of the church. William James Jennings says it this way. Wherever people give themselves to the disciplines that attune the body to its hunger for the spirit, they will find themselves receptive to the voice of God. Let me read it again. Wherever people give themselves to the disciplines that attune the body to its hunger for the spirit, they will find themselves receptive to the voice of God. There's movement by God to to come and plant this church of Antioch. But then there's a return movement of the people in Antioch prayerfully sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then the spirit comes to that community. This is why we pray and fast and worship. These are the disciplines that attune our body to its hunger for God. We pray and worship, we practice the disciplines of worship and prayer in order to be attuned to the hearing of, voice, of, of the voice of God. Our bodies and minds and hearts desire the divine. That's how we are created. We are created to desire God. Augustine says we are restless until we find rest in God. Our hearts, our bodies, they desire to be, the, the, be in communion with God, to walk with him and talk with him. That is our desire. We are created to desire that. And so we come to Sunday morning worship once in a while hoping or hoping to check a box or on our religious requirements. We come to church when we feel like it, we stay at home when we don't feel like it. But worship and prayer and contemplation these are disciplines. They require participation even when we would be wanting to do anything other than this. Even when we're broken and hurt and and far away, it's a discipline for us to come and worship. I'm sure many of us have heard this saying here prayer changes things. I grew up hearing that. Prayer changes things. I think it's true. Prayer does change things. The first and foremost thing that prayer changes is you, it's me, it's us, this church. Prayer changes things, yes, us. Prayer changes us in such a way that we are in line and in will with God, with the will of God. What prayer changes is us, and when we are faithfully immersed in the disciplines of the church, prayer and worship, we, like the church in Antioch, are going to hear the voice of the Spirit. What prayer does is it changes us, and it puts us in a posture to allow us to receive and hear from the Holy Spirit. Prayer changes things, and we are those things. We are setting ourselves up in a humble position to be able to hear from the Holy Spirit, Who desires to speak clearly to us just as the Spirit spoke to the the Antiochian church. God desires to guide us if we would only posture ourselves to hear. If we would only begin to understand that church isn't an extracurricular activity. It's not going to the park. It's not going to a baseball game. It's a discipline. Church, worship, prayer, it is a discipline. It's not something we do when we feel like it and skip when we don't feel like it. Or it's something that we must do in order to check a box, in order to get to heaven someday. No, and, and I said this to our people on Wednesday. I'm not saying that if you're sick or unwell or physically unable to come, to come anyway. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I, it feels like that there's so often times where we just don't feel like coming. But it is a discipline for us to come anyway. And worship and ground ourselves. Church is the place that we come to learn, to pray, and give ourselves to the disciplines that attune our bodies to the desire of the divine that's deep within us. The Spirit's guidance comes to the early church that consists of people who have given themselves to the church disciplines of worship and prayer and fasting. This is what the church in Acts does. This is what the church is called to do. If it is our desire to be a church that hears the clear voice of the Holy Spirit, we must give ourselves to the disciplines that position us to hear and see. And so, Pastor Mary Elizabeth, she mentioned this earlier. We, we've been announcing for the past few weeks um, prayer at the parsonage. Um, and, and it's been something we've kind of wanted to do all summer, and we wanted to do it after summer came to an end. Prayer at the parsonage, 4 o'clock on Sundays. And we began to announce it as something we would start doing once a month. And if you could come, it would be great, you know, and if not, it's okay. Um, we've been convicted, and, and we felt the Spirit guiding us this week that. Um, once a week's not enough. I mean, once a month's not enough. And so we're, maybe once a week's not enough too, but here we are. We're going to start doing prayer at the parsonage once a week. And, and I know there's so many of you that feel that anytime we, anytime we announce a new thing to do, you feel like so obligated to participate in it and, and do everything you can. And we appreciate that faithfulness. Um, the point would be to open our home to, to, um, to have hospital, a time of hospitality, but a time of, of prayer. And so a lot of that prayer time will be spent praying for one another and and the prayer requests on our prayer list and what's going on in all of our lives. But a significant part of that that hour, that 45 minutes or so of prayer that we'll have each week will be for the church. Will be for us that we will be changed and, and brought into the disciplines of the church that will attune our hunger, attune us to our desires deep within us to hear the spirit. So that as the Spirit speaks and guides this church, we will be able to receive it and move with it. And so if our desire is to be a church that hears the clear voice of the Holy Spirit, we must give ourselves to the disciplines of the church. And so we're going to once a week be meeting at the Parsonage. I think we said four o'clock, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, Our our home will be open. We invite you to come. That will start um, two weeks from today, the first week in September. And so we hope that you'll be able to participate in those in, in some weeks. If, if you know that you can commit to once a month, then put it in your calendar. Once a month, the one, one week that you plan on going. If you want to do every other week, put it in your calendar. If you can come every week, then that's fantastic. Come every week and spend time in prayer, posturing ourselves, positioning ourselves to hear the Spirit. So we've, um, we're going to be doing that soon, and, and we're looking forward to that. Our focus will be towards what the Spirit is leading the church, our church, the Church of the Nazarene here in Manchester. And it will be an opportunity for us to sit at the feet of Jesus. To be near as a congregation to Christ. Prayer and worship, it's a discipline. It isn't a hobby, right? It's not something some of us are cut out for and some of us are not cut out for. The time of prayer at the Parsonage, will be a discipline. It will be a discipline for our family. It will be a discipline for our church. It will be a discipline for your family and your church, right? And so even for us... Um, holiness folks, we know that we need to spend time in prayer. And and it just so happens that this week's response time that we, we have, our intentional time of response will be a time of prayer, specifically a prayer of confession. And I think even for us holiness folk, folks, we need a time of confession. Even for us, we need to, to posture ourselves so that, you know, when... When, when we are experiencing the voice of God, we don't get mixed up with it being something that we are accomplishing or doing. And so we spend time in, in confession in order to posture ourselves in prayer and, and, and um, acknowledgement of our desire and our need for God, our God and God's spirit to, to pour out on us. And so our response time again this morning, it will be on confession and we'll be praying together a prayer of confession. We've prayed it before and I want to invite us to read this prayer of confession together. Can you pray with me? O merciful Father, do not consider what we have done against you, but what our blessed Savior has done for us. Do not consider what we have made of ourselves, but what he is making of us for you, our God. O that Christ may be wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption to every one of our souls. May his precious blood cleanse us from all our sins, and your Holy Spirit renew and sanctify our souls. May he crucify our flesh with its passions and lusts and cleanse all our brothers and sisters in Christ across the earth. We implore you, O Lord, strengthen your church by your Spirit, that we may truly be the body of Christ in the world, offering faith where there is doubt, hope where there is despair, and love where there is hate. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite the praise team to come and sing one final song, a beautiful hymn, Nearer My God to Me. We're going to to, to, to sing this as a prayer and as an invitation for us as a church to posture ourselves and, and to take on the disciplines of the church. Part of my reflection this week as I've been preparing this sermon is where the conviction to move this prayer at the parsonage to once a week instead of once a month was... Um, is that the, the, the text has led us there. But I, I feel strongly that, that God is calling us into a posture of prayer. And, and I guess I'm, I'm wanting to put a timeline on it, but I don't want it to end. But, but I want to spend, especially this next year, really thinking about how we need to posture ourselves and, and, and intentionally praying so that we might hear the Spirit. So that the contemplative part, the prayer and worship, that part we can nail down, we can get it right. And so that when we are hearing this, the word of God, we may be strengthened in such a way to go out and to th- do the active part. So, again, there's two things we hold in tension as Christians is contemplation, prayer and worship, which sometimes can feel or look like doing nothing compared to the act of love that we see in Paul and Barnabas going out, bearing their crosses. But we have to do both. We have to sit at the feet of Jesus to be able to walk with Jesus. We have to sit at the feet of Jesus to be able to walk With Jesus. And so let's sing one more song this morning and be invited into this season of prayer and fasting and being immersed in the disciplines of the church. Let's all stand as we sing.